57, Isaiah chapter 57, Isaiah chapter 57. You might be blessed with a short sermon tonight, but I'm not going to make any promises, amen? My uh, my voice is uh, scratchy, as you can hear. It's allergies, and and uh, mine have gone down into my chest. My wife's went up into her ears, and so she's got uh, ear infections. Either that or she just don't want to listen to me, one of the two. Maybe both, I don't know. Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 57 tonight. Let's begin reading in verse 13. I just want to read three verses tonight and share with you a few thoughts that the Lord laid on my heart. Isaiah chapter 57, <coughs> excuse me, verse number 13. The Word of God says, When thou criest, let thy companies deliver thee. But the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them. But he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And shall say, cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for your word. Lord, give me strength. Give me voice to preach for just a few moments tonight. And Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be able to take these things that are said and use them in our hearts and minds. Lord, help us to rightly divide the word of truth. And Father, help us to glorify you in all that we do. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I bet you can already imagine the phrase that I want us to focus on this evening. There in verse number 15, the Lord says this, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. The Lord says this is why he does that, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. You know, we're getting ready to go into a series of meetings here at the beginning of this upcoming week, and we have called these meetings revival meetings. And I make no apology for that. I, I know sometimes we, in wanting to emphasize that revival is not just a scheduled series of meetings, I think sometimes we get a little too far in the ditch on the other side and make it seem as though there's something wrong with calling it revival. I don't think there's anything wrong with calling it revival. I think we're expecting revival. I think we're praying for revival. I, I don't know about you, but I'm trusting the Lord to do something in our church family over this next week. We're not just having a series of meetings. Uh, we can have a series of meetings, but that's not what we're wanting to do. We're wanting to have a revival. Amen. So I make no apologies for calling it revival, but I do recognize that revival is going to have to be something beyond just those meetings. Now that might be where it is birthed, or at least where it is manifest in our church life, uh, but it can't just merely be contained to a series of messages and services. We're asking God to do something in our church family. And so as I began to ponder and pray about this revival meeting, I began to look in the Word of God at what the Bible says about revival. You know, the term revival has become something that I think has been culturally adopted. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but I think sometimes we have taken ideas that maybe even have biblical foundation in other places, and we've sort of scabbed them on to this term of revival and what revival means and is. When you look in the Word of God, you'll find that the word revive, and it really it only appears in three ways, either revive, reviving, or revive, is only found 15 times in your Bible, 13 times in the Old Testament and only twice in the New Testament. In 13 of those occasions, it refers to physical or biological revival or national revival. You say, preacher, what do you, what do you mean? Well, to someone either being raised from the dead or to someone who was at the point of death and in deep fatigue being given back strength 
uh, or in the case of Israel as a nation being raised up uh, from their spiritual death and being put back into the land and, and established the way that God intended for them. So what can we learn when we look at that? Just as a statement in and of itself. Well, I think we can learn this, that revival is for those that are weak and those that are weary. As we come into this next week, I'll admit to you, listen, I need spiritual strength. I don't know about you, this past year's been hard, hasn't it? Uh, listen, we, we've dealt with things we never thought we would have dealt with, things we couldn't have even imagined. And if, uh, if you're anything like I am, there's just a pressure that you feel on you all the time. There's a, there's a cloud, it seems, just kind of hovering over life. And I'm not trying to complain. I ain't trying to pour them out. But I'm just saying, it'd do me good to get a breath from heaven. It'd do me good to get a little strength. I, I'm not weary of the way, but Brother Ken, sometimes we get weary in the way. Amen? And I think we need a little strength. I would say this, that revival also uh, refers to those that are in a dead condition being made alive again. I'm thankful if you're saved by the grace of God, uh, then you're spiritually alive and nothing can take that away. But we do recognize this truth that there are times when we are dwelling in the strength and reality of that life that we have in Christ Jesus. Times when the Lord feels and seems close to us and uh, we sense His presence and times when we dwell close with Him. And so I would say it's appropriate to say sometimes we get a little dead in our spirituality and we need to be revived and we need to be raised up again spiritually speaking. Not saying we've lost our salvation. Not saying we need to be given it back. We've not lost it. We don't need to give it back. Uh, but listen, I think there are times that the psalmist prayed for the Lord to restore his soul. Amen. We need restoration spiritually speaking. But you know, of all these 15 occasions in the Bible, only on two occasions is the word revive used of personal and spiritual revival. One is in Psalms 138.7 where the psalmist asks and prays to the Lord to revive him in a time of trouble. The other occasion is found here in Isaiah 57. Uh, we find that the uh, context of this passage, the children of Israel have been living in disobedience unto their God and they have been seeking after false gods false idols, and God is warning them uh, that sooner or later everything's going to come crashing in, that those false gods will not protect them, will not sustain them, and is pleading with them to, to get rid of their false gods and to seek Him as the true God. How would we define revival? You know, Vance Havner once said that revival is God's people falling in love with Jesus Christ all over again. I think that's a pretty good definition of revival. I think maybe I'd describe it this way, that it's us growing more devoted and more intimate in our relationship with God. Maybe we could say it this way. It's Him getting a little more of us and us getting a little more Him. I understand we have all of Him and He already has all of us, but I mean us pursuing after Him and us allowing Him to have more control over our life. And I think what we find here in Isaiah 57 gives us sort of a pattern of what we're asking God to do this next week, why we need God to do it, and what God needs from us if He's going to give us revival. There's a lot of folks talk about revival that don't ever have revival. Uh, there's people write books about it that ain't ever had revival. Uh, but I want to have revival, and I want to know how we can do that. What can we learn from our text here tonight? First, I want you to notice in verse 13, we find the desperate scene of revival. What was it in the children of Israel's uh, life that, that called them to a place of revival? Why was revival so needful and so necessary for them? Well, I notice in verse 13, look at the first phrase. God says this, when thou criest, let thy companies deliver thee. Now, he's talking about other nations that they had leaned upon, and he is more specifically talking about false gods that they had looked to. And he's saying, in the time of trouble, 
Cry to those false gods and see if they will help you. And I would say this. You say, preacher, why do we need revival? Because just like the children of Israel, our idols have failed us. We're living in a time where we've looked to far too many other things to give us peace and to give us guidance as God's people. That's evident by the fact that every time there's an election, it's either the greatest thing to ever happen or the worst thing to ever happen. I don't want you to misunderstand me. I've got things that I believe our government ought to be doing, and I've got a lot longer list of things I believe they ought not to be doing. But understand this, that listen, our peace of mind and our securities never come from Washington. It's never come from the White House. Uh, listen, I don't know what's going to happen to this economy, but I, I'd say this, it's, I'd be getting ready to buy because I think things are going to tank. Let me tell you this, God's people have never got their bread from the pantries of this world. We've always got them from the hand of God. Amen. God's people been, have been fed by bread from heaven ever since the wilderness. and God can feed His people. And you say, what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying there's a lot of things we've looked to that have failed us. And that's a pretty good time to have revival. You know, as long as people think those other things can get the job done, uh, they won't go after God. You know that, Brother Ken? As long as they think anything else will satisfy them, this is just human nature. A lot of times God has to bring us to a low point before we'll look up and seek help from Him. So I would say their idols had failed them. Look at the next phrase. The Lord says, but the wind shall carry them all away. Now He's speaking of how God is going to allow uh, the tumult and the, and the tempest of, of bondage and captivity to cure Israel of her idolatry. And that's exactly what happened. When Israel came out of Babylon, they never nationally had a problem with idolatry in the classical sense of the word again. Uh, now, they had a lot of problem with formalism and legalism. They rejected the Messiah. I'm not saying that they uh, were not a people that uh, were not wayward, but I'm saying that problem of going after Moloch and going after Baal and going after these other gods, they never had that problem again when they came out. And so God's saying there's a storm coming and the storm is going to sweep all those things away. And you say, preacher, why do you... Why do we need revival? Well, I think like Israel, our idols have failed us. But number two, the storms are tossing us. In other words, your life and mine, you say, preacher, why do we need revival? Because uh, things ain't exactly peaceful out there and we have no promise they're going to get better. Now, I understand one day Christ is going to sit in Jerusalem and rule with a scepter of righteousness. But between this time and that time, we do not know what kind of turmoil we may experience. And I tell you, God's people better be getting ready for hard times. If this last year hadn't taught us just how quickly things can change, I don't know what could teach us that. Uh, these many generations that we've been able to lean back on the luxury of casual Christianity, friend, that's, that's going by the wayside. We're coming into a time it's going to cost you something to stand up for the name of Christ. The storms in life will toss us. And then I would say, personally speaking, that can be true. So preacher, why do we need revival? Because there's no promise that our life won't fall apart tomorrow. Uh, there's people right now sitting down at UT Hospital whose life was perfectly pleasant uh, this time yesterday, and today it is in pieces. Why should we walk close to God? Because we don't know what lays ahead in our paths. And then I notice this next phrase. The Lord says, vanity shall take you. Now again, I understand that the Lord is saying here that the emptiness of those idols is going to be made apparent and going to be made plain to them, but it reminds me that there's no sense of fulfillment in anything other than the Lord. And I would say this, we need revival because the emptiness is consuming. Casual, shallow Christianity ain't getting the job done. Man, we need the Lord. We need the Lord. Uh, part of the reason our society is in the wreckage that it's in is because we have unhinged our entire society from all moorings that related to God and the Bible and truth. 
after about four or five generations of ideological Marxism teaching young people that there is no God, there is no truth, there is no right, there is no wrong, we look around at a world that is burning down, scratch our heads and say, well, it must be this group's fault, it must be that group's fault. Say, preacher, what's wrong with it all? Well, we've kicked God out of all of it. And the emptiness is consuming the world. We see it all around us. There's instability everywhere that we turn. I see the desperate scene of revival. But then I notice uh, down in verse number 15, the divine source of revival. Look what it says. The Bible says in verse 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. He goes on to describe how he wants to give revival to his people. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Revival comes from a person. It doesn't come from a program. It doesn't come from an event. It comes from a person. We're going to have revival. We're going to have to get close to God. There's no real revival while staying distant from God. We're going to have to get close to God. And if we get close to God, it'll bring revival in our life. But we're going to have to get close to Him. He's the divine source of revival. Listen, I'm looking forward to Preacher McBride coming and, and preaching to us. But if we have revival, it won't be because He brought it to us. And I listen, I hope my preaching helps you. But if you have revival, it won't be because I gave it. If we have any number of ministries and programs and things that we do, and I, I'm not criticizing those things, but those things are not what brings revival. The only thing that revives the heart of God's people is God. We get close to Him, we'll have revival. If we drift from Him, we'll begin to spiritually rot and dry up. So why is that? Well, notice first off His nature. He says, for thus saith the high and lofty one. Can I notice this, number one, that He is limitless in His ability? He's not human. He's not like you and I. He is the high and lofty one. He's not one of many. He's one that's above and beyond all. And he is without limit. You say, preacher, I, I just, I worry sometimes that, that God can't bring me and give me in my life what I need. You need not worry about that, friend. He's able to. He's, you say, preacher, I, I can't fix my problems. Well, yeah, cause you're the low and lowly one. But he's the high and lofty one. He's different than you. He's got what we need. He's limitless. Number two, I notice that he's timeless. This is fascinating. He says that inhabiteth eternity. You know, that's the only time you'll find the word eternity in your Bible. You don't find it anywhere else. You'll find the word eternal and everlasting and forever. But you won't find the word eternity anywhere but right here in Isaiah 57, 15. And think about what it says here. It says that God inhabiteth eternity. You've heard me say this before, but... We talk about God as though He is a time traveler. We speak of it as though God can fast forward time and rewind time and so on. But I don't really think that's how it works. Now, I'm not going to get too much in the weeds here, but I want you to listen carefully. What is time? Time is a moving continuum. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that time is this moving... Imagine as though we're on a train and we're moving along the track. And there's nothing we can do to back the train up. And there's nothing we can do to fast forward the train. We're on this constantly moving reality. I can't go back to the things that I said a few minutes ago. Sometimes I wish I could. You ever say something and immediately wish you could go back and unsay it? Welcome to my world. And I can't fast forward. Try as I may, I can't make time speed up and go any further. I'm on this moving continuum, me and you are, and we're traveling this thing together. But God is not bound in that way. God does not view the world in this moving continuum. He inhabiteth eternity. In other words, there's no moment of human existence that He's not immediately present in. We talk about the past and we talk about the future, but it all just is to God. 
How does he describe that in the New Testament? He calls himself the I Am. Isn't that what he said in the Old Testament to Abraham? He said, tell him, I Am sent you. I Am that I Am. And in the book of John, Jesus tells him who that I Am is. That He is the I Am. Everything is ever present. Uh, the very moment you got born again is just as present to God right now as this moment is to us. He inhabiteth eternity every moment. Now, somebody's going to say, preacher, that's good. Why does that have anything to do with revival? Because some folks walk around pretending like revival is just something God used to do. You hear me? Like it's just something God did at one time. Like somehow we're living in a day where God can't revive His people. But I have a problem with that because today may be today to us, but it ain't no different than any day to God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If He could do it then, He could do it now. He's timeless. He's timeless. Then I see His name. And you know what I see here? I see that He's sinless. The Bible says whose name is holy. Holy. That's His name. That's His nature. That's His condition. He is holy. He is sinless. He makes no mistakes. He never makes any errors. He never does anything wrong. He never does anything amiss. He is sinless. And you know what that tells me? That tells me that God, if He seeks to revive a group of people, He cannot do that in opposition or overlooking their sinfulness. Something's going to have to be done about our disobedience. And it is with that in mind that I look at this text and I see four things that God requires to revive the heart. I didn't say to revive the church. I didn't say to revive the the county or the state or the nation. Because that's not where revival starts. It starts in the spirit and in the heart. How can God revive your heart and mine? What does He require? Look with me at our text. The Bible says this, but He, in verse 13, He that putteth His trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Did you notice that phrase? Putteth His trust in me. You know what we find here? The seeking in faith of revival. Uh, One of the things that God requires to give and to grant revival is we've got to seek revival. And to seek revival, we've got to believe that revival is possible. The Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe. What must he believe? That He is and that He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Why would we go to God about revival if we didn't believe God could give revival? Let me flip that around. If we believe God can give revival, shouldn't we go to Him and seek revival? In other words, we've got to have faith that God can do a work in our heart and life. That things don't have to just sort of churn along the way they've always been. That God can do great and new things in our spiritual walk if we'll just pursue after Him. Notice the language He uses to describe this. He says, He that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land. Now what land is He talking about? Well, He's talking about Canaan. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that the land of Canaan was the promised land of God to His people, that if they would trust Him, put their faith in Him, He would lead them into the land, conquer the enemies before them, and deliver that land unto them. We could say this, that Canaan was the will of God, the perfect will of God for the children of Israel. For them to live in Canaan in the way that God intended was for them to have total victory in their life. And I would say this, for a lot of years people would liken Canaan to the idea of heaven. And I I don't fuss with folks about that. It's fine if you want to do it. I sing a few gospel songs that make that mistake and enjoy them quite thoroughly. But Canaan is not a picture of heaven. It's a picture of the victorious Christian life. In other words, we have to have faith that we can conquer the land. You have to have faith. If you're going to ask God to revive your heart, you have to have faith that God can bring you into new spiritual boundaries. 
In other words, and I'm not talking about anything vague or abstract. I'm talking about giving you victory over things you ain't never had victory over. I'm talking about making you grow closer to Him in ways that you've never grown closer to Him. Making you know and love your Bible in ways that you've never known and love your Bible. Make you go to the prayer closet and it live and breathe and be a dynamic place in a way that it never has before. In other words, we have to recognize that the status quo does not satisfy. And we can go further in our walk with God, but only will we do that if we really believe God's capable. I believe God can do that. I don't believe we have to live the same old way we've been living. I believe we can go forward and we can conquer the land. And then number two, notice what he says here, shall inherit my holy mountain. Now when I think about the term possessed, Brother Tim, I think about grabbing hold of something. When I think about the term inherit, I think of something more long term. If they're going to inherit something, meaning their children will inherit it, I think we could make this very, very basic observation. Evidently, they ain't just going to conquer the land. They're going to keep the land. You know part of the problem, you know part of the reason we don't go to greater spiritual depths in our life because we, we've done give up the fact that we can ever maintain that spirituality. We have far too many times come to an altar and begged God about something that we begged Him about a hundred times before and it's got us gun shy about this thing revival. We've done grown embarrassed about our walk with God. We don't want to come and ask God to do something because we say, well, I'm just going to mess it up anyway. I'm just going to go back into the same sin again anyway. I'm just going to backslide on God again anyway. So what's the point after all? I'll tell you this, with that attitude, you never will conquer any land. You never will grow. If you've done resigned yourself to mediocrity, that's exactly where you'll stay. We have to have faith we can not only conquer the land, but that we can keep the land. I understand, and I've observed this as a pastor over a few years, that very often growth in a church, numerical growth and ministerial growth, it's like pushing a rock up a hill. Uh, and you'll push for a while and you'll get tired and the, the rock, usually what it'll do is roll over top of you and flatten you. But at some point it'll stop rolling. And then you get a little strength and you start pushing it back up the hill. And the goal is always to make sure it never rolls back down as far as it was the last time you started pushing. We understand that to be a reality in life, not just in ministry, but in any number of things. We need to recognize that God has the ability. I, I'm not saying you ain't never going to backslide on God, but I'm saying you can grow and not lose that growth. You can develop and not lose that development. That's what revival's about. Revival is about making us more like Christ and us being closer to God at the end of it than we were at the beginning of it and making strides. And I'm not saying you're never going to backslide. I'm not saying you're never going to make mistakes, but I'm saying you can conquer land that you keep in your spiritual life. So I see the seeking in faith of revival. Look at verse 14. The Bible says this, And shall say, Cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. The image here is of a king or a high official making their way into the city of Jerusalem. And very often the roads that led into Jerusalem would be impeded and hindered by various rocks and obstacles and things that would slide off of Zion, off of the hill, and would impede and impair their way in. And when they were coming in, they were a high official. They would have servants that would go before them who would pick up the obstacles and throw them out of the way so that they would have a clear passage into the city. And I would say this, we've got to be seeking in faith for revival. But number two, we see the stumbling blocks removed for revival. Understand that you can want revival and want it sincerely but not have it because there are things that are in your life that are preventing you from growing close to God. I see the restriction of these stumbling blocks. There's things that stand in your way. There's things that God wants to do in your life, but because you've set up golden calves 
and fenced off areas of your life that you want to retain your independence and your control over. Sins that you decided are just too dear and, and too ingrained in your life that you can't let those things go. And it's not that God's hung up on that sin. It's that you're hung up on that sin. I'm going to say that again. It ain't that you, it ain't that God's hung up on that sin. You're the one who won't let go of it, not God. He's wanting to do something in your life. But if you grab hold of that thing and won't let it go, it becomes a bone of contention. It becomes a symbol of disobedience and it becomes an idol in your life. A source of stubbornness that keeps God from being able to have total control over your life. Because that's what revival is. How do we become the most like Jesus? By giving Jesus the most control of our life. Uh, that, that's what Paul taught. He said uh, that I'm crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20 I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. That sounds real spiritual and, and beautiful, but it leaves a problem. How does that happen? Well, the Holy Ghost answers that. He says, I, and if I live in the flesh, He says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul says, I lay myself on the altar. I crucify myself. My ambitions go. My plans go. My desires go. Uh, my, my lusts go. All those things go on the altar and are killed, are slain there. A knife drawn across the neck of all of Paul's desires in life. And then I ask the Lord to take the governance, the reins, the control over my life. And then, it's not me living, Paul says. It's the Son of God living through me. That's how we become more like Jesus Christ. But how's that going to happen if there's things that we refuse to give to God? I see the restriction of these stumbling blocks. So what do we do? We've got to get them out of the way. See the removal of them. The term cast you up has the idea not just of gently rolling it out of the way, but of picking it up and hurling it out of the way. Uh, some of the reasons we go back to the same old things is because we just set it about four inches from where it was sitting in the first place. If we don't throw it clean out of our life, we make it too easy to go back to uh, Paul said it this way, we're to give none occasion to the flesh. Uh, in other words, we shouldn't take our sins and just kind of just kind of ground them in, in, in the next bedroom away from where we are. We ought to kick them out of the house. We ought to get rid of them entirely, completely. Else we'll run back to them. We'll run back to them. What would happen if they took those stones and rolled off the mountain and put them about 15, 20 foot up uh, the mountain? Pretty soon they would roll back down in the way again. But if they took them and pitched them down the valley and pitched them out of the way... And they didn't have to contend with them anymore. You see, they're stumbling blocks. There are things you can want revival, but there'll be things in your life that if you won't let go of, and if you won't confess to God and repent of and put out of your life, that it impedes God giving you revival. And then I notice the spiritual plane of revival. Uh, look what it says down there in verse number 15. God says, I dwell in the high and holy places uh, with Him also that is of a contrite and humble Spirit. I notice where revival occurs in the life of the believer. You say, what do you mean? Well, God says I dwell, number one, in the high place. So if we're going to have revival, we have to get our perspective off of the low things. Uh, you say, preacher, what are low things? Well, the affairs of this life. Now, I understand, and, and you probably do too, that we all have responsibilities day to day in this world. We have jobs that we go to and time clocks we have to punch. We have uh, responsibility. I'm, I'm, right now, I'm in a game of chicken with my front yard. I, I'm, I refuse to mow it until I can get lost in it. Next week. I refuse to, because you don't get that time back. That's just a basic truth of life. You listen to me? Nobody gives you a cookie for mowing the yard one week too early. That's just time you've lost. That's just gas you've lost. That's just energy and effort that you've lost. 
Sooner or later, that yard's going to get up there. I'm going to have to mow it just like you got to mow yours. I'm going to have things that I have to do just like you have things that you have to do. Much of life is spent in the mundanity of responsibility. But you know what the problem is? Uh, we've done made the, the responsibilities of life the purpose of life. And we're just sort of muddling through, just checking things off our to-do list and trying to get through to the next thing. And we've lost sight of the fact that God's wanting to do something bigger in our life. I'm not saying neglect those things. I'm not saying lay down on the job. But I'm saying lift your eyes up and recognize that if God's going to do something in our life, we've got to get our vision on higher things. Things higher than your mortgage. Things higher than, I was going to say your electrical bill. But we'll see. Amen. Things higher than the mundaneness of life. So I see it's in the high place, but then I notice it's in the holy place. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place with Him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. So God God requires holiness in our life. The Bible says we're to follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see God. Now what does it mean to be holy? It means to be consecrated. Now that does involve being righteous in our behavior, but it also involves having our life sanctified and separated unto God and His will and His purposes. In other words, it's not merely enough to be moral. There have been lots of moral people throughout life that have died and went to hell because they didn't place their faith in Christ. And there's been lots of Christians that have been very moral that have been dead, spiritually speaking, as far as having revival in their life. Uh, most people, now maybe this is changing some in the permissive society that we live in today, but most people don't go buck wild just because they get backslid and dead. Some people do. A lot of people just go on in that backslidness, that deadness, and they maintain their morality. So holiness is more than just morality. It's more than just righteousness. It's being consecrated and separated unto God, in fellowship unto Him and in His will and in His purpose. And I'll tell you this, revival ain't going to come if we're not willing to be holy. Unless we're willing to commit ourselves to God, uh, revival won't happen. So I see the spiritual plane of revival. And then finally, I know you don't believe me when I said finally, but I said finally, we see the sincerity required for revival. What does God say? He says to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. So we see two qualities there. Humble, humility, and contrite, contrition. Now what do those two things mean? Well, they're both deeply associated with the idea of sincerity. For a man to be humble, he has to be sincere. For a man to be contrite, he has to be sincere. So what does God require of us? Well, I would say this. We need the sincerity to recognize our sin. That's what humility is. Humility is being honest with yourself and with God about what your life is. As long as we're wearing a uh, spiritual mask and playing games on God, as long as we're willing to play the role of a hypocrite and pretend as though everything's okay, we cannot accept and we cannot expect any help. Some of us, we say we want help. We say we want revival because we believe that's what's expected of us. But we really don't want anything to change. We really don't want our life to be different. We really don't want anything to be disrupted. We've got our routines We've got our ruts. My pastor used to say a rut ain't nothing but a grave with both ends kicked out. And that's all that we've got. We have to have the sincerity to recognize. When God speaks to us, we have to be honest. Honest with ourselves and honest with Him. And then what follows? Well, the sincerity to recognize our sin. But you know, there's a lot of people who will admit that their lives are a mess. But then they won't do anything about it. In fact, a lot of people today, it's sort of become a badge of honor for people to wear their brokenness around as though that is a noble thing. And we live in a society in which victimhood and brokenness uh, carries a high currency on it. 
but you know, it's not just good enough to recognize our brokenness. We have to have the sincerity not just to recognize our sin, but to repent of it. To repent of it. Uh, as we said, there, there's a lot of theater in the world today in being willing to acknowledge that our life is a mess. But it does no good to acknowledge it if we won't then go to God and say, Lord, I'm willing to give this mess, this brokenness, this wickedness, I'm willing to give it to you to confess it, to repent of it, and to ask you to cleanse me of it. In other words, we're going to have to get honest with God. So what does God require? Well, we've got to have faith. We've got to believe God can give us revival. There's no point in praying for revival if you don't believe revival can and will happen in your life. Uh, you've got to believe that God can and will. You've got to be willing to remove the stumbling blocks out of your life, things that would prevent you from having revival, sin in your life and idols in your life that are standing between you and God. We've got to be willing to lift our vision higher than just the lowly affairs of this life. I'll tell you this, what we have here next week, it don't matter how good it is, there ain't going to be no reporters down here reporting on it. They won't have nothing about it on CBS Evening News. There won't be any viral articles written about it. The, the world's not going to care what goes on here. But I'll tell you this, if you're God's child and if you're seeking revival, you'll care. And God will care if His people are seeking Him and desiring Him and passionately pursuing Him. And won't make headlines down here. But on that spiritual plane, in that high place, in that holy place, God will take notice of it. And then it's going to take some sincerity. We've got to be willing to be honest with God and honest with ourselves and to repent of the things that would prevent us from having revival. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. And if God has spoken to your heart, I think you ought to meet Him down here in this altar. What are you praying to God for? What are you asking Him to do this next week? Are you seeking revival? Are you asking God to give you revival? Are you actively looking at your life and asking, Lord, is there anything that might prevent me from having revival? Are you doing your part in God reviving your spirit, your heart? Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify your Son. We ask it in Jesus' name.